Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today we are speaking with Dave Burrs. Dave is a man on a mission. He spent a large chunk of his career leading the creative departments of some of UK's biggest and best advertising agencies. Now he's focused on demystifying creativity to help individuals learn new skills and to help companies use fresh thinking to innovate more effectively. Dave's opinions have been published in books, magazines, and newspapers. He's the former editor-at-large for The Drum, Europe's most popular marketing website and magazine. Last November, he released How to Get to Great Ideas, which became a bestseller in half a dozen Amazon categories. He also wrote A User's Guide to the Creative Mind, and co-wrote the best-selling book, Iconic Advantage. He's also a broadcaster. In 2014, he wrote, directed, and presented the television show, The Day Before Tomorrow. He's created a number of other films since, and is currently working on other TV and film projects. He can often be found traveling around the world, speaking, consulting, or teaching or sitting on the floor making up ridiculous stories for his three-year-old daughter. Welcome, Dave Burrs. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Lily. Very well indeed. And, and you're coming in from across the pond? Yes, or, or maybe you're from across the pond. It depends which side you're looking, looking at it from. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm in one side of the pond, you're from the other. <laughs> there you go. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Indeed, I am. <laughs> awesome. So, Dave, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? My main career that I had through my life was in advertising. And I spent 20 years in advertising. And for just over half of that, I was in leadership positions. I ended up at quite a young age being creative director of ad agencies. And because I ended up at such a young age, leading creative departments with people in the department who were considerably older than me, um, that kind of led to me having to have a, a particular kind of leadership style, which I guess would be defined as being more compassionate rather than ego-driven. And because if I was this young guy and I've got these people who are older than me and I'm telling them what to do, I would encounter resistance if I was going to go in as this sort of... Um, hard-nosed, egotistical business leader. Mm -hmm. But instead, what I did to get the best work out of them was more about going and seeing what are you doing just now? What are you working on just now? Is there anything you want to show me? Um, is there anything that's stopping you being great at your job just now? That was the question that I would ask them every day. Is mm -hmm. there anything that's stopping you being great at what you're doing just now? And then they would tell me, well, this person's giving me pressure at the moment or I've got this other job on that is stopping me from getting on with the good stuff. 
And what I would do is I would take all that away from them. So I would take away the stuff that they didn't want to do um, because it was time consuming or, or I'd take away these conversations that when people were sort of hassling them. And the agreement was that if I did that and cleared away everything that was stopping them being excellent, all they had to do was be excellent. Mm-hmm. And that was the style of leadership that I guess was forced into using because I didn't really have another option. And it felt then to be the most comfortable way of me leading creative departments to try and get the best ideas out of large groups of people. You know, that's pretty remarkable, though, I have to tell you, because not every young leader who's leading older people would go that route. Well, it seemed to me to be the only way I could do it. I'm not an egotist. I'm not brash. I'm not, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not the person who wants to put themselves first. I knew that I would be noticed for the work that was coming out of my department. So all I had to do was make sure there was great work coming out of my department. That's how I would be measured, was on the strength of the ideas and the strength of the work. Mm-hmm. So for me, it just seemed like the natural, sensible approach was just to do whatever I could do to make sure that the best possible work was coming out of the department. And it seemed to work. We, mm-hmm. we did some great stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wonderful. And what are you doing now? I now... I've got, I guess they call it a portfolio career. I'm an author, so I write books. And last year, there were seven books published that I either wrote or was involved in in some way. I also, I'm a filmmaker, just finishing a documentary that I'm about to release and then working on some proposals for TV series at the moment. And I am a consultant, so I work with some clients as well to help them get better ideas out of their employees because that's really what I specialize in. Everything I do is really around creativity and innovation, how to get better, more effective ideas out of groups of people. That's mainly the different things that I do, I guess, writing, broadcast, consulting, and a lot of public speaking. So I travel the world as well. Wonderful. Now, you described your leadership style. What one or two words would you use to encapsulate that? Maybe it's non-alpha male. Okay. I guess that could be one way of doing it, coming at it from one direction. Another way, I guess, is just compassion. I really think mm-hmm. that that's what it's about. I'm not a fan of corporatism. Mm-hmm. I think that corporatism is the poison that is affecting businesses at the moment. I think it's leading to incredibly inefficient, ineffective businesses where people are more focused on process than the humans and the ability of the humans that operate within the organization. Mm-hmm. I think that corporatism dehumanizes stuff and I think that any of that kind of approach is business poison so Mm. I think that the more humanity that we allow the more that we care about people the more that people will care about doing a great job and it's certainly from my experience it's what I've found and when I go into companies who are asking me to help them I very often find that it's corporatism is actually the thing that's preventing them from getting great ideas and great work from their employees You know, you speak about corporatism and the work that you do in these organizations. If an organization wanted to contract you to break that mold or to really get a sense of where they are at, how do you do that? What's one of the first things you do? The first thing I do is I go in and I do what I call an ideas audit. Mm -hmm. And I do an investigation of the business. And and that is looking at lots and lots of different areas. So Mm -hmm. I look at the work that's coming out. Very often I'll speak to lots of members of staff from across their organization at lots of different levels. I'll very often speak to some of their clients as well. 
I'll speak to the leadership team. I'll find out what their ambitions are. I'll find out how strong their vision is and whether their vision is something that is narrowing people's thinking or inspiring mm -hmm. them. I will look at their culture. I will look at education. I'll look at how they hire people. As well as looking at learning, I also look at unlearning mm -hmm. because that's one of the really important things to me is that when we are wanting to move into the future and to be better prepared for what's to come in business. Yes, education and learning is a very important part of that. But unless we unlearn the stuff that's useless now, the stuff that's redundant, the stuff that's holding us into the past, then we can't move into the future effectively. Mm -hmm. So I do sessions with companies, which is looking at how to unlearn. But the main thing that I do, first of all, is I do an audit. And then that shows the areas that we need to address, whether that's culture, whether it's leadership, whether it's processes, whether it's the expectations of clients, whether it's even how we try to sell work into clients and then how we hire people as well. So it's totally encompassing and very often what comes out of it is looking at organizational change mm -hmm. as well as things like training and hiring strategies as well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it even comes to the very business strategy itself, which the business strategy itself is actually maybe not quite right. It's focused on what people do rather than what you're trying to achieve. If you're focused on what you want people to do, which is all about the process, then you're missing out actually on the more important side, which is what you're trying to deliver to your customers. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you start to get into the old Kodak story of the whole thing was they were totally focused on the fact that they were a chemicals business. It was about what they did. It wasn't about what the marketing was, which was absolutely bang on. The marketing for that was Kodak Moments. Mm -hmm. And it was all about capturing these special moments for people. And if they'd been focused on that, that would have been the right strategy to be focused on as a business rather than we are a chemicals company. That's a whole different story. We can have a whole conversation about that, <laughs> the Kodak moments. So I'm just curious. So let's say you start with a company that really sees the need for change and they've been focused on process more than on the humanity or the human component. How long does it take to shift? It depends on how committed the leadership are. Mm -hmm. And it's one of these things you can actually shift really quickly. I mean, we're talking maybe about two, three months here in, in terms of being quick, but mm -hmm. it's in terms of the leadership themselves. And they have to show that they've got a commitment to it. They have mm -hmm. to show that they're leading by example <laughs> rather right. than telling people right. what to do. So there's all of these different kinds of approaches that we need to have, but you can do it relatively quickly. When the companies want to do it quickly, very often what will help them do is kick off with some big activities. And we create some activities that people get behind. And sometimes these things can be like, we're going to shut down for a day and we're all going to work on coming up with ideas for the future. There's other stuff that I will do will be training sessions that will be across the whole company to try and get people understanding new ways of working. But the most important thing is that people very quickly need to see that the changes are having an effect. There's so many organizational changes in recent years I've been seeing in companies. They happen, but people don't see the benefit of them. So I make sure that people see the effect, they see what's happening, and they understand what the benefit is. And when they do that, they're far more likely to embrace the changes that you're putting forward.
I know that in education, there are a lot of changes that happen often. And so, you know, we become a little, I guess, jaded because Naturally. it's like, oh, another proposal, another change or shift of leadership. And so here comes something else. But the importance of what we're talking about is that everything rises and falls on leadership. And the way leadership goes is the way that the organization goes. So that's important. Mm-hmm. Now, Dave, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I think I would say compassionate and passionate leaders. It really is so much about caring about your team as human beings. There's a few bosses I've had that have been really good at that. And I've seen the difference that that makes. And then working in the world of advertising, there were some huge advertising companies that I worked for. And when you get to that level and you've got hundreds of people working in an organization, the leaders don't even know who everyone is. And I'm afraid that humanity kind of goes out the window. So at that point, corporatism sets in and you start to get a lot more cynicism amongst the staff. There was some research that was done in companies in the last few years that discovered that there are twice as many people who are sabotaging a company as there are people who are actively engaged in promoting a company. How do we keep up with that? Well, it's actually about caring about people. The reason that people are disengaged is because the company is disengaged with them. It's a two-way street. You cannot expect people, just because you pay them and you treat them terribly, to care. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work like that. I mean, money in itself can be a demotivator if you don't pay people enough. But once you're at a reasonable fee, money is no longer a motivator. Mm-hmm. And what motivates people far more is when they've got reward and recognition built in there. That's where a lot of companies, from my experience, are going badly wrong. And they think it's all about money. And because you're paying people, you can just treat them awfully and expect them to do their job 100%, which is why we then have this terrible drive towards productivity, which then just makes it even worse for everyone. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, Go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top-level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Now, Dave, I'm curious. Do you currently have a coach or have you worked with coaches for yourself? I've not had a coach. I've never experienced that. For some people, it's going to be very important. For other people, I would see myself as an autodidact, I think is the term for it. I'm somebody who teaches myself, and I'm very good at self-learning. And I'm constantly learning new things. I'm constantly running experiments. And I think that because I'm not completely set in one way of doing things, and I'm always exploring and questioning what I do, then I probably don't need a coach quite as much. So for some people, I think it's really important and I totally take my hat off to them for doing that. For me, it's not something that has been quite as important, even although there have been some people who have had a huge effect in my life and in my career. Mm -hmm. So you don't have a professional coach, but you do ask questions of those around you and you're open to them speaking into your life. Oh, yes, very much. I mean, in, in, in that sense, the, I guess the world is my coach. I'm that annoying kid who's just <laughs> constantly asking why. 
So when I was in advertising and I would be doing a photo shoot or I'd be doing a film shoot, I'd be the guy there who'd be talking to the director and saying, why are you doing it this way? Why are the lights set up like that? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And I would end up learning so much because I was just so curious about everything that I wanted to learn. Mm. And it meant that through my career, there came a point when I was um, creative director of advertising agencies that I could read a script and I could tell you how much that would cost to film. Wow. <laughs> just by looking at the script. And that's because I learned so much from just constantly asking questions and being curious. It's one of these things that I think is kind of missing from a lot of companies is curiosity. Because mm. curiosity can only thrive when you allow people the flexibility to try things in new ways. Because if you're telling people that this is what you have to do, this is how you do it, you've killed curiosity and right. self-directed learning. At that point, people can't grow in the same way. Well said. Thank you so much. Now, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? I think I'll go for a quote from uh, one of my great heroes, um, Dr. Seuss, or Dr. Seuss is actually how it should be pronounced, Theodore Seuss Giesel. Um, Dr. Seuss has many, many wonderful quotes, but there are so many things you can learn about, but you'll miss the best things if you keep your eyes shut. My problem that I have is that people aren't looking broadly enough. And there are so many things that you can learn from. And if you're only looking at things through the filter of your own industry and your own organization, you're limiting your learning. You're limiting all the incredible input you can have. Because the brain is like a processor. You've got input, process, output. And the one thing that people would very often try to get me into organizations to tell them how to come up with ideas, teach us brainstorm techniques, they would say. I mean, brainstorms are terrible things. They're 77 years old this year, and they should have retired long, long ago. They are awful. And the whole thing is that the processing, which is what that's all about, the processing has a limited effect. If you get one of the new IBM supercomputers, I think they've just announced one a couple of months ago, an incredible new supercomputer, the most powerful in the world. And you've got a Raspberry Pi computer, which is, you know, it costs you 30 bucks and it's really cheap. If you've got the same data source and you've got the same algorithm running on these different machines, at that point, what you're doing is you're saying it's all about the power of the processing. So if you've got a crappy data set and you put it into both of those devices, you will get crappy results. Crappy input, crappy output. Mm -hmm. And if you've got amazing data set and you put it through both of these computers, you will get great output. Great input, great output. What will happen is it just takes you slightly longer in the Raspberry Pi. So it's the input that affects the output, which is why that quote, it's about keeping your eyes open. Problem is that a lot of people, they have their eyes shut to so many different things. Now, the more input you have, the more interesting input, the more varied input, and if you can spot things that other people don't spot, then you can come up with ideas that other people cannot come up with. And I do exercises with companies on how to do this, how to be able to get much broader input, how to be able to learn from things so that it affects the product that you have as output, whether that is like an advertising pieces of creative ideas, which are the output there, or whether it's to do with innovation with organizations. It's the broader the input you have, the more chance you have of having powerful output. Let me get this straight. So when I think of brainstorming, typically that's a positive thing. 
But I suppose what you're talking about is the process or the platform in which that develops. Well, brainstorming itself tends to be done completely wrong in organizations. Okay. What happens is most of the time, there'll be somebody who's a little bit too bouncy, comes around uh, the <laughs> office in the morning and goes, brainstorm, brainstorm, uh, 10 minutes in the boardroom, brainstorm, I've got biscuits, you know. <laughs> People then go into the room and you've self-selected the lazy ones because the ones who say they're free, they would much rather spend half an hour or an hour in a room with some biscuits than sit in front of the spreadsheet or whatever else they're supposed to be doing. So you've self-selected the people who are work avoiders. And you've got them in a room, and then you tell them the problem, and then you go, ideas. Who's got ideas? There's one person in front of a flip chart who's then scribbling down those ideas. And everything is wrong with that, absolutely everything. What's wrong with it is you've not got sufficient input. You've not got the interesting, valuable input. You've not done decent research. You've then not applied thinking to that research to find out what the most important information is, to find out what the insights are that are going to lead to the great ideas. You've jumped immediately to the third stage, which is generate ideas, without any of that background foundational thinking. And that means that anything you've got there tends to be scattergun, it tends to be low value, first ideas. Because mm. what also happens is when you've got one person in front of a flip chart, you've got what you call production blocking. That means that all the ideas have to go through one person, no matter how many people there are in a the room. There's one thing being talked about. The other people who are having ideas during that time, they end up not being able to express those ideas and share those ideas because there's one idea at a time being dealt with in a flip chart. Then at the end of it, people hope that they've solved it. They rip off the flip chart, they get the intern to type them up, and then they look at the document and they get nothing. Now, one of the problems, of course, is when you've got people looking at first ideas, because that's what they're coming up with in a session. You've only just given them the problem, they've not got sufficient information, they start coming up with first ideas. The first ideas are obvious ideas. What happens is people talk about things that they've seen elsewhere. Oh, somebody else did this, we could do that. Now, that's not actually proper thinking. That is just adopting from someplace else that you've seen. Now, that can be valuable, but in most situations, it tends to just be something that's less valuable because it's obvious. And what I try to help people do is get to non-obvious valuable ideas, because that's when you can differentiate yourself. That's when you can get a jump in the competition because you're doing something that they haven't thought of. But if you're just going for first ideas, you're doing what anyone else would come up with, what anyone else would think of, and you're not going to come up with an idea that's going to give you that jump on the competition. Now, you've given me some clues as to that process. Can you touch a little bit about a better process than the typical brainstorming? Yeah, certainly. I actually talk about it in my latest book. There's a process that I use, I've been using for a couple of years now. It's taken me a long time to develop, and I've been using it for the last couple of years. It's worked on everything I've applied it to. And it's called right thinking. So the word right, R-I-G-H-T. Mm -hmm. And it's a mnemonic that stands for research, insight, generate ideas, hone ideas, test ideas. Mm -hmm. And the generate bit is in the middle. So that's kind of what the brainstorm should be doing. But brainstorms are terrible ways of doing that. But once you've got your ideas, you shouldn't think that that's it. The idea has to solve it. No, at that point, you take the ideas that feels if they've got the most opportunity in them, and then you hone them to make them as good as they can possibly be. And the whole thing is when we're within an organization, 
And we've got our perspectives based on our knowledge and understanding. And to be honest, a lot of our assumptions that we have made doesn't mean that it's going to work in that way. You have to test them. Because it's the one thing I've found from building websites and everything that I've done over the years, when you launch it, people don't respond to it in quite the way you thought they would. I don't think I've ever had anything that I've put out there that has worked in exactly the way that I thought it would. The first time, especially. (laughs) Yes. So you have to test. You have to test and learn, which is why that's an important part. The T at the end of right is a really important part. Now, Dave, if our listeners wanted to purchase your books, where could they do that? Well, I'm on all good Amazons. If they want to find out about the book first, if they go to my website, it's Dave Burse, all one word, D-A-V-E-B-I-R-S-S dot com. And if you go along there, you'll be able to see a little bit about what the book's about. I do some readings from the book there as well. And... If you just go onto Amazon and search for how to get to great ideas, the book should come up. Okay. So, Dave, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think in in the advertising industry particularly, the advice that helped me was uh, be nice to people on the way up because you're bound to meet them again on the way down. (laughs) And it's one of these things that, I mean, I kind of got to the top of the industry and then I quit. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are people who their career then doesn't quite go to plan. And sometimes you need nice people. You need people to help you in your career. And if you're not a nice person, people aren't going to want to help you. And I find that being quite pleasant to work with and being quite fun probably helped me. (laughs) So be nice to people in the way up because you're going to need them at some point. Great. Now, In your career, I'm sure you've built a lot of teams and have been a part of teams. What does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? Well, a good team to me is one that goes above and beyond what's asked of them. Mm. A lot of people think that teams really need management. And I think that a lot of teams are overmanaged by somebody who can be a little bit overbearing and and wants to tell people what to do. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's a good team. I think that a good team is a team that understands what you want them to achieve and will go away and do it and will do it in the way that's best for them. Mm. And that means that if you're not there for a week and you worry about your team not delivering, then I don't think you're managing your team properly because a good team will be one that can operate in your absence, not just in your presence. Hey, leaders, This is the end of part one of a two-part interview with Dave Burrs. Make sure to tune in next week as we conclude our conversation.